7.01 a.m. Central African Time. If you are just joining us, good morning. This is Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa. My name is Samora Mangesi, standing in for Lulu Gabu. I am not alone in studio. I do have Anne Musa, Joalani uh, Tulo, uh, as well as Figile Lingwati. We are available on www.channelafrica.co.za as well as on the DSTV Audio Bouquet Channel 802. A couple of top stories on Africa Rising China at this hour. Zimbabwean churches call for a seven-year suspension of elections. Utu Dzane Zuma concludes testimony at the state capture inquiry. In economics, South African government urged to take unpopular decisions to save SAA. And uh, in sport, South Africa qualifies for Rugby World Cup quarterfinals. But first, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Anne Musa with your latest news bulletin. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Mozambican police say members of one of its elite units were involved in the murder of a poll observer in a ruling party stronghold just ahead of next week's election. The head of a local election obs- observation mission, Anastasio Matavele, was shot dead on Monday in Shanshai, the capital of the southeastern Gaza province. National Police Commander Bernardino Rafael says there were five perpetrators involved in the homicide, of whom four were police officers. The attackers suffered a fatal car accident as they fled the scene. Two died on the spot and two were seriously injured, while a fifth managed to escape. Unknown gunmen are now asking for a ransom after at least nine people were killed on Monday evening in the Nigerian capital Abuja. They abducted the victims from an area on the outskirts of the city. Reports say the victims include a 12-year-old boy. Eyewitnesses say the gunmen were dressed in military uniform. They laid an ambush along a main road and fired shots in moving vehicles, forcing them to stop. The police in Abuja say they are making a concerted effort to rescue the abductees. The health department in South Africa's northwest province has started to roll out the mass immunization of children around Rustenburg following three cases of measles in three different locations in the area. Given the highly contagious nature of the disease, the three children have been admitted to hospital in isolation wards. The immunization campaign is targeting children aged between 6 months and 15 years. According to the World Health Organization, measles caused an estimated 109,000 deaths in 2017. The provincial health spokesperson, Tebucho Lihatwane, has cautioned parents about the dangers of not having their children immunized. Measles is a viral infection and uh, it can be fatal if, it, if not affect, uh, attended to. So we urge our uh, communities around that area to uh, speed up the campaigns, but to the parents, we urge them to come to our facilities to immunize the children. Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces say they have come under attack from ISIS militants in the Syrian city of Raqqa. 
The SDF says the militants had launched three suicide bombings. It says the militants were taking advantage of an imminent Turkish invasion of Kurdish-led territory in the north. Earlier, the commander of Kurdish forces in Syria said they were still working with the Americans to try to resolve this, this situation after U.S. President Donald Trump announced that it was withdrawing American troops. The White House says it will not cooperate with the impeachment inquiry that Democrats have launched in the U.S. House of Representatives, calling it partisan and unconstitutional. In a letter to senior Democrats, White House lawyers say President Donald Trump cannot participate in an inquiry which lacks legitimacy because it is proceeding without a vote in the House. The BBC's Laura Trevelyne reports. Democrats will now have to answer and decide whether or not they want to hold a vote on an impeachment inquiry. If they do, they could potentially then force the White House to cooperate. But also you have a parallel procedure going on in the Senate. And we heard from a leading voice in the Senate that he's going to call in Rudy Giuliani. Meanwhile, though, opinion polls show that support for an impeachment inquiry is increasing. And that is troubling Republicans behind closed doors. And that's the news. Airlines are at 7.30 Central African time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The chairman of a congressional committee leading investigations in the impeachment inquiry of United States President Donald Trump says the state's depart- uh, State Department's failure to produce witnesses and other documents is considered strong evidence of obstruction. Adam Schiff, who leads the House Intelligence Committee, was reacting after the State Department directed a key witness not to testify before an impeachment deposition and withheld text messages they argue are relevant to their probe. As Sean Bryce Peace reports, three House committees now plan to use their subpoena powers to compel the witness to testify. At the center of this latest fight between Congress and the Trump administration is the latter's decision not to allow United States Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, to appear before a closed-door hearing Tuesday. Sondland is mentioned in the original whistleblower complaint that led to the impeachment inquiry and is seen as a key witness to the administration's dealings with Ukraine. Listen to Chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. We were informed about an hour and a half ago that uh, by the attorney for Ambassador Sondland that the State Department would refuse to allow him to testify today. This was after conversations um, well into uh, yesterday afternoon and evening uh, with the State Department legal advisor in which there was no indication uh, that the ambassador would be a no-show. At the center of the complaint is an allegation that President Trump used a telephone call to urge Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to investigate Democratic political rival former Vice President Joe Biden. The complaint also raises concerns that a brief suspension of military aid to Ukraine at the direction of the White House and just before the call between the two presidents was suspicious. The failure to produce this witness, 
the failure to produce these documents, um, we consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. This is one of the few impeachment inquiries in the history of our country. It goes to the core of whether the president abused his office to seek political help in his re-election campaign and did so to the detriment of our nation's security. Ambassador Sondland's attorney indicated in a statement that his client was ready and willing to testify but was blocked by the State Department from doing so. Adam Schiff. We are also aware that the ambassador has uh, text messages or emails uh, on a personal device which have been provided to the State Department, although we have requested those from the ambassador, and the State Department is withholding those messages as well. Those messages are also deeply relevant to this investigation and the impeachment inquiry. We know from those text messages that diplomatic personnel raised a concern with him uh, that military assistance was being withheld to secure help from Ukraine in the president's re-election campaign. President Trump tweeted earlier that he'd love for Ambassador Sondland to testify, but that he'd be doing so before a totally compromised kangaroo court and has largely labeled the inquiry a hoax and a witch hunt. You can't impeach a president for doing a great job. You can't impeach a president for having the lowest and best unemployment numbers that we've had in 51 years. You can't impeach a president for tax cuts and regulation cuts and creating, and even the ambassador would say, the strongest economy in the world. We have the strongest economy in the world. This is a scam, and the people are wise to it. And that's why my polls went up. I think they said 17 points in the last two or three days. I've never had that one. Contrary to the president's words, his poll numbers have remained largely unchanged at around 41% approval, with 53% disapproval. So, what is clear from these latest developments is that the Trump administration is prepared to slow walk any cooperation with the impeachment inquiry by, for example, refusing to hand over documents or blocking witnesses just hours before testimony was due to be heard. Democrats have warned that attempts to interfere with their probe would be viewed as obstruction, a charge they consider as grounds for impeaching the president. I'm Sherman Rice-Pease in New York. Heads of Christian denominations in Zimbabwe have called for suspension of elections for seven years. The church leaders representing all major denominations in Zimbabwe who met in the capital Harare say a seven-year Sabbath would remove all political contestation from the land and focus the period on healing past wounds, recover the economy and build a new political culture of cooperation focused on nation-building. Simon Mchemwa reports from Harare. Leaders of various Zimbabwean Christian churches on Thursday Narare called for a seven-year suspension of elections and political activities aimed at healing the nation. The country's economy is deteriorating with characteristics such as corruption, shortage of fuel, price increases, collapse of the health and education sector owing to protracted political contestations. Zimbabwe holds harmonized elections to choose the president legislators and senators every five years, and the country is always in an election mode, churches have said. 
In 2009, Zimbabwe witnessed a political challenge that gave birth to a government of national unity, GNU, within which the country witnessed some economic stability. In 2013, the GNU collapsed after ZANU-PF won elections. Again, the country's problems resurfaced. When President Emerson Mnangagwa took over power from the late Robert Mugabe, the economy began to witness an economic meltdown, hence the call by the church leaders. Zimbabwe Council of Churches General Secretary Dr. Kennedy Mutata explained. We are calling for a suspension of political contestation in a broader sense, uh, but specifically referring to elections. What, what we are asking is that, is it possible for us to focus on... Uh, uh, on uh, the full and uh, holistic process of healing broken relationships. Because what, this is what we are actually struggling with. Is it possible that we can focus uh, on a development uh, agenda in which uh, politics plays a, a side role? Uh, could we focus on a, a national economic recovery agenda uh, which is uh, informed by convergence rather than competitive political uh, environment? The political rifts have resulted in low investor confidence, worsening of the Zimbabwean socio-economic challenges political experts have revealed. Many people in Zimbabwe today believe that the main political contestants, Emerson Mnangag of ZANU-PF and Nelson Chamis of MDC, should bury their hatchets and unite. During the MDC's 20th commemorations in Harare, Nelson Chamisa pledged to participate in a dialogue for the good of the nation. Reverend Mtata explained how dialogue would assist the nation. The nation could use the coming period to usher in a true jubilee for the nation by removing all political contestation from the land and focus the period on healing past wounds, recover the economy, and build a new political culture of cooperation focused on nation building. The current deteriorating economic crisis, which is characterized by systemic corruption, shortages of fuel, prices going out of control, and collapse of the health sector, needs to be built from the ground with everyone's support. Zimbabwe goes to elections in 2023 to elect new political leaders, but if that happens with the prevailing conditions on the ground, then the country could turn to a waste page, Father Frederick Chiromba said. The proposal actually comes uh, from the heads of the nominations with the realization that, uh, you know, we, we tend to be focused, you know, on elections all the time. We are either in a pre-election mode or in a post-election mode, you know, where elections are contested. Like now we may say we are in a post-election mode where, where the elections, as we were saying, were contested. Both the ruling ZANU-PF and the main opposition MDC have been engaged, Father Chiromba explained. We have engaged both sides, you know, the main uh, political parties, and the leaders are actually in favor, you know, of having this dialogue, uh, only that it hasn't happened until now, but we keep trying. Uh, and with this Sabbath arrangement, we hope uh, it will make the dialogue uh, even easier. While Munangagwa is on record calling for dialogue, he has been unable to meet with Chamisa, who on one hand has also been preaching peace and dialogue, Dr. Mtata bemoaned. The dialogue has not matured to that uh, level, but what uh, the Sabbath call does is to introduce substance also into the dialogue. 
So it provides some content, what that dialogue could look like, what could it entail. But what it also does is that it demystifies the assumption that this dialogue should only be between two political uh, contestants. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. South African businessman Duzana Zuma has told the Commission Inquiry into State Capture that he does not want the public to perceive him as a corrupt individual. The former president, Jacob Zuma's son, took to the stand and gave testimony for the second day at the Commission in Parktown, Johannesburg. Zuma was uh, followed by Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries Program Manager Aldam Chiza and Johannes Teron on uh, an estate agent. Several witnesses have implicated Zuma and his business associates, the Gupta, in wrongdoing at the commission. Abangile Tumako has more. On the perception front that is purely on the court of public opinion, which is driven by a narrative that stems from media reports and allegations from wherever they come from. I'm looked at as a criminal. I'm looked at as this face of corruption, this guy that's plundered trillions out of this country, which is not the case, by the way. So I'd just like to, to say to the public out there, I'm not corrupt. I'm not taking any money from anybody. I never have, and I never will. Um, how they take it, that's, that's not for me to decide. But I just want to make that clear. So when you see me walking around, just know that I, <laughs> it's, it's not me. Duduzane Zuma became known as corrupt following incidents of involvement in corrupt activities. Among those was that he facilitated a meeting between former Deputy Minister of Finance Mkabisi Jonas and businessman Fana Shongwana at the Gupta residences in Saxonwald, Johannesburg in October of 2015. He has told the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that is not corrupt and has received no money from anyone. But Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has poked holes in Jituzane Zuma's testimony about why the meeting between former Deputy Minister of Finance Mkabisi Jonas and ANC member Fana Shongwana had to be moved to the Kupta home in Saxonwald. Responding to Justice Zondo's question in concluding his testimony, Zuma said the Gupta residents had catering, printing facilities and staff runners. Justice Zondo was, however, not convinced. It just seems to me that there, there should be no reason why you can't have two friends in your home who want to discuss a private matter. They were friendly to each other. I only had one friend, so the other technically is not um, and was not my, my friend. And yes. So from a, a welcoming perspective, from having someone in my home that I don't know, something that I don't generally do, and I didn't do on that day. Mm. I would have thought that uh, at least for purposes of that kind of meeting, your friend's friend would be welcome to your home for purposes of this discussion, which you had taken trouble to say, I want to help them resolve this. The commission also had evidence from Eldam Chiza, the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries Program Management Coordinator. The commission heard that over 200 million rand in public funds was channeled into the Freda Dairy Farm project led by a Gupta League Estina. It was promoted as a tool by the provincial government to benefit black emerging farmers, but the bulk of the cash allegedly ended up at the Guptas. Mchiza elaborates. They had picked up that the Freire Dairy is a public-private partnership and that the province did not follow due process for a public-private partnership and as such they are in violation of Regulation 13.61 and um, 
any continued expenditure on this project will equal to um, unlawful um, expenditure. As a result, they are requesting that we should withhold the conditional grants. And the commission wrapped up with the evidence from an estate agent, Johannes Theron, who told the commission how he was transported alongside his former employer, Mr. Newman, to Johannesburg for a meeting that took place in a security compound in Saxonwald in Johannesburg. Theron says during the visit he was required to demonstrate and explain the happenings at the Newman's dairy where he used to work. He says at that stage they had about 400 cows for milk producing and about 21,000 liters every second day, which was equating to 25 liters per cow. I'm Abongile Tumago in Johannesburg. Son of former South African President Jacob Zuma Duzane Zuma has uh, surprised many by his testimony at the State Capture Commission sitting in Johannesburg. Duzane told the commission chaired by Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo that he is not corrupt. Zuma appeared at the commission for two days to answer allegations leveled against him by several witnesses at the commission. The son of former president has been implicated in organizing meetings between um, the member of cabinets and uh, the politically connected Gupta brothers. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by political analyst Professor Tiniko Maluleke. Thank you very much, Prof, for joining us. Good morning and thanks for having me. Prof, what can we make of Duzani's testimony at the State Capture Commission? It was it was a, 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 a very uh, impressive performance. It was uh, smooth. Uh, it was uh, uh, you know it was sprinkled with uh, the necessary decorum, the necessary ch- chairperson, say and very respectful um uh, and i must say very good english um i also think that his main aim if one looks at the entire presentation was to clear his name and to show that he was not a key player in any deal making and also to cast doubt on the evidence of those who uh uh, implicated him, especially the testimony of Mkwesi uh, Jonas, Fakey Mentor, uh, and 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 Dugana, the embassy from the Free State, just to leave a lingering doubt in the minds of the commissioners and the minds of South Africans about the authenticity of the testimony that they uh, they presented. I think that was what he tried to do in, in, the, in the two days. Uh, he also tried to charm uh, South Africans, uh, quite a charming young man. But the, the question is, which has not been answered, which many South Africans wanted to, to understand, there are at least two questions which were key. One was whether he was indeed the fixer, the facilitator, the go-between, uh, between him and the presidency, uh, between the Guptas and uh, him, between him and the cabinet ministers, you know, whether he was the go-between between big business uh, and the Guptas and government, was he a deal-maker? 
That's really what we wanted to know. Do we know that after this testimony? I don't know that we know it, but we we wanted to have an idea about that. The second key question that South Africans wanted to understand was how come that the son of a democratically elected uh, president, not a monarch, but a democratically elected president, how come that this son finds himself in those spaces, uh, in those deals, making the kinds of deals, mediating uh, between the likes of Jonas and Fanat Longwane, frequenting uh, the Gupta house and uh, making calls to um, uh, ministers, uh, cabinet ministers? How come? You know, again, that question I don't think was answered. Now, Prof, we we do get the sense that uh, he is quite popular with uh, regards to the public and he has managed to win over quite a few people with that charm. Um, But is he playing to the wrong gallery? Well, uh, there is no wrong gallery, uh, technically speaking. I mean, because why do people go to the commission? People go to the commission for for two or three very important reasons. One is to clear their names. I mean, you could argue that the commission is a kind of a dry clean. You know, you go there to clean your name <laughs> uh, if you succeed. Mm-hmm. So that is the one aim. The other aim is to use the time at the commission to speak to to the to the court of the public to talk to the general public. Yes. Uh, to make your case to them because they matter. You know, I mean, what a commission decides is very important because it becomes part of history. But what people think matters a lot. Mm. Uh, public opinion is very important. So that's the second reason uh, people go to the com- uh, uh, to, to the commission. The, the final reason is people go to the commission to practice in inverted commas. Should they need to go to a a real court of law? Uh, so they 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 work out their options there. They get to understand um, the the loopholes. It's a practice session for for the possibility of, because a commission is not a court of law, uh, and everybody who goes to it knows that. So so there is no wrong gallery. All three all three audiences, all three publics, the legal, the general public and the personnel uh, are, are important to address uh, when people go to the commission. And lastly, Prof, what do you make of the Deputy Justice Zondo poking holes in the young Zuma's evidence? There were many holes, indeed, in, in, in young Zuma's evidence. Um, and, and that is the problem for him, uh, you know, as he leaves the commission. He hasn't, I, I raised the two very basic important questions that uh, he, he tried to dance away from, uh, but it's two, those are two big questions for him to dance away from. There were also discrepancies between uh, his version and the version of uh, his, uh, his friends, uh, the, the Guptas and, and, and Uncle Fana, whom he refers to as Uncle Fana, Fana Shuguan. There were differences of, of opinion. There were also um, uh, holes insofar as he claimed that he was never given a chance by the previous uh, uh, public protector to answer for himself, when in fact 
she she did exactly that, but he was not available and he was traveling. I mean, to expect that she would wait for him for how long, uh, for an indefinite period, would, would, was very uh, unreasonable. So there are huge holes in in uh, in the story that he presented. He want he clearly wanted to present one side of the story, his side of the story, and he wanted also at the same time like a magician to ensure that people did not look where he didn't want them to look. All right, Professor, thank you very much for joining us. And that was Professor Tiniko Maluleke, a South African political analyst. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. And now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here is Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Mozambican police say members of one of its elite units were involved in the murder of a poll observer in a ruling party stronghold just ahead of next week's election. Unknown gunmen are now asking for a ransom after at least nine people were kidnapped on Monday evening in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. And the health department in South Africa's northwest province has started to roll out the mass immunization of children around Rustenburg following three cases of measles in three different locations in the area. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa's tourism sector is growing, but not as fast as investors in the hospitality industry expected. The continent attracts a mere 3% of uh, worldwide tourism revenues, and they are blaming a less developed aviation sector in the continent that makes connectivity and travel tough. But investors in aviation say African governments are yet to realize the need to promote stronger aviation within the continent. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi spoke to some aviation companies on how aviation can boost tourism in Africa. Air travel is one of the major means of transport across tourism sites. 
United Nations World Tourism Organization shows that Africa received around 70 million international tourist arrivals in 2018. Although this was an increase from the previous years, experts in hospitality industry say these numbers are concentrated in a handful of African countries that have managed their hotel industry according to what tourism attraction they have. Investors in hospitality industry complain there is less air connectivity in Africa. Esayas Waldemariam, the deputy executive of Ethiopian Airlines, says for tourism to grow, Africa must project itself as a brand and not wait for foreign entities to support it. Africa is now rebranding itself and, uh, you know, many people have been, especially non-governmental donor organizations and others, they have always been projecting a miserable state of affairs on the continent that people only need to help Africa. But the most sustainable way is for Africa to help itself. When it comes to aviation, only 3% of Africa's total uh, aviation traffic is being contributed to the world. So we want to grow that. Taking that 3% as 100%, 80% of Africa's uh, air traffic is being uplifted by non-African airlines. So now we are bringing Africa's brands for people to perceive Africa. But this starts from Africa itself. And hospitality and travel needs to uh, start within Africa. The middle class consumer, which is growing, need to fuel, you know, the velocity of money and economy needs to circulate within the continent. Then it gives a vote of confidence for others to perceive Africa in a better brand when we try to project ourselves in a better way. Esayas adds that politicians have a big role to play to make improvements in investment climate in the aviation sector in different countries in Africa. Yeah, you know, politicians are invoking such kinds of slogans, which is very good, and it gives a political will, and the entire government functionaries need to be designed in such a way. And most of Africa's hospitality should be uh, driven by, you know, uh, the private sector. Once, you know, the hurdles uh, from uh, the governments are removed, the private sector can freely thrive. But even intra-Africa travel remains a challenge. Ken Narisha Kenei, the country manager for Kenya Airways in Ethiopia, adds that this is partly because African countries still have barriers that prevent easy access through borders. In, in the African context, we form almost 12% of the African, I mean of the world population. But when you look at the flying population, we form only 2.5%. So we really miss out almost 10% in terms of people who are not flying from the African continent. And then the question, of course, is then, uh, why are people not flying within Africa? And uh, number one, which will uh, come to mind, even without thinking, is of course connectivity. And uh, connectivity in terms of, it is very few countries who have direct carriers from point A to B. If I give you an example, for example, it's difficult for you to fly from a country of, let's say, South Africa to a country, let's say, in North Africa, let's say, Tunisia or Morocco or wherever. Likewise, it's difficult for you to fly, let's say, from a hub in West Africa, let's say, Abidjan, to a hub in East Africa, like, let's say, uh, Dar es Salaam you have to go to a second or a third country for you to reach your final destination. So connectivity, of course, now comes with other uh, trickle-down effects, like it um, translates directly to high ticket fares. You know, if you're flying direct, it will be much cheaper than you flying, you know, by other, other uh, countries. He adds that even for airlines that are already in the African skies, stringent measures within countries restricts their expansion. 
things to do with the liberalization of the African skies, where most African states have not uh, liberalized the, their skies. You know, you cannot have additional frequencies to a destination. It is a challenge to get uh, things like fifth freedoms from one country you know, to the other. It is quite a challenge for you to increase your frequency, for example, to some X destination, you know, irrespective of the fact that you have fleet and all those. And then, of course, the weak infrastructure in terms of uh, uh, most African airports are not very developed. We have uh, rural, I mean, uh, maramed uh, runways where big planes cannot land. We weak infrastructure in terms of uh, most African carriers do not have the necessary fleet to touch every part of the African continent uh, in terms of labor, in terms of other infrastructural aspects that facilitate uh, Investors in the hospitality industry in the continent that depend on tourism to make more money are banking on the African continental free trade area to ease intra-Africa trade and connectivity. This, they say, will attract more tourists to Africa and in turn enable them to build more hotels and expand their investments. I'm Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Well, the time is now 7.37 Central. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. The Standard Bank Gallery in Johannesburg is currently hosting an art exhibition titled A Resilient Visionary Poetic Expressions of David Kulwane. The exhibition is a retrospective masterpiece about one of South Africa's most influential artists, the late David Kulwane. The exhibition pays tribute to Kulwane, whose long artistic career carves him as a trailblazer and a critical voice that paved the way for many black South African artists. For more on this, Tutongobeni spoke to the curator of the exhibition, Dr. Timbinkosi Koniwe. The exhibition is titled A Resilient Visionary, Poetic Expression of David Kolwane. It's an exhibition I've been working on for a few years back, trying to profile David's work, as well as celebrate his ideas, in particular, his drawing, his painting, his dreams. So the exhibition is assembled about some uh, so works from a different range of his creative production. That's what the exhibition is about. For an African or a South African who doesn't know who David Kolwane is, who is David Kolwane? Uprate is an artist from Johannesburg who grew up school there and work and live there, but have traveled the world. And 
he started art in the late 60s, you know, mentored by Ulus Makubela, one of the great uh, sort of great artists now living in London. So Ulus Makubela, they met in school, and then he mentored him, encouraged him to draw, and then brought him to to police streets just to get encouragement, took him to galleries at a time when Prague would say himself that because of apartheid, gallery was meant for only whites. So for him to have met Louis Pralus Mkobera and take him to the gallery as well as encourage him to draw, it was just a really revelation and an encouragement. That was the first stage of his intervention. But of course, like many of us, he studied art during his primary school. It was there, he, during our interview, he would speak highly about reading and uh, sketching, you know, and one of his teachers noticed that and encouraged him to read more, so much that even give him some books to read, because David is an avid reader. And then when Lewis was heading to London in the 70s, he introduced him to the late Bill Ainsley, also one of the great painters in South Africa. Bill Ainsley was then in Johannesburg running uh, a studio in his house where different artists, including William Kendridge, and many others of different race, even gender, will come at Bill Ainsley and work, and some will get lessons. And David joined the Bill Ainsley, <clears throat> we call it now Academy, as a, as a student. And then he, he became like best friend with Bill Ainsley, who also, like Louis Makubela, encouraged David to explore his own ways of expression. And and that this is the seventies. And remember, at that time, South Africa is changing with the students uprising, especially led by the Black Consciousness Movement. The likes of late Steve Biko, the likes of now Professor Pani Pichana, Mpumlan, and many others were involved in the PC movement, including Mampelo and other people. So, of course, that moment of being young and being energetic. And of course, the rise also of the poets, such as Wallace and the writers and all of that. So David was part of that kind of culture. And Bill Ainsley offered that because even Serrote and many others would visit there to exchange ideas. So it was one of those places where different races would meet at the time apartheid prevented that. So David comes out of that. Now, in terms of the exhibition, what can one pick up from the exhibition? Because I see you chose a variety of painting to be part of this exhibition. But for an art enthusiast who comes, who goes to view this exhibition, what can they expect to see there? So to answer your question, what you get in that exhibition is a range of today's work. One series is what you call it, uh, assemblage, assemblage, which is more like a collage, recycled material. Sometimes they operate as relief sculptures. So that's one series where you will take bicycle, old bicycle uh, wheels, combine it with old saxophone, with wood, to create these so-called companion images that they speak of the everyday material 
but also demonstrating his innovation, his search for alternative material, instead of always buying paint, canvas, and, and oil tubes and so forth. But also, you do get also him working with canvases that are mounted, some are framed. He paints on them figuratively at times. In most cases, he paints on them like more abstract. So that's the range of work. The work ranges from what I call, you know, exuberant, but also this kind of somber, you know, experience of what it leaves to live, to live in the city like Joburg. On one hand, it's an exciting city, diverse, dynamic, you know, and yet it is this experience of the mining, you know, the exploitation, you know, this dark side of this modern city. And you see that kind of expressions in David Corona's work, but in a very subtle way. And then other series uh, include drawings, because they spend a lot of time drawing as well, using lines, you know, free lines, as if he's searching for his, his subject, for his figure, for his shapes. And that was Dr. Tembingosi Koniwe, renowned South African art historian, on the line talking to Tutongo Beni. It's uh, now time for us to find out what's happening in the latest economics news. Here's Joala Nitulo. Thank you, Samora. Good morning. South Africa's trade union Solidarity has urged government to take unpopular political decisions in order to save the South African airways. SAA and SA Express have failed to table the annual reports in Parliament. This was as a result of financial challenges the airlines are facing. But Solidarity is blaming this on lack of technical expertise at the airline and cater deployment. Werner Heumann is the union's deputy CEO. What's needed is to be unpopular politically. We find that they still would want to be politically popular and implement uh, uh, turnaround strategies. I think what SAA would find and the other SOEs, you cannot be politically popular and do the right thing at the same time. One of them must budge and I think the political interest should be the one that budges. South Africa's Reserve Bank has conducted its second monetary policy forum in Bulogwane in the Limpopo province, where senior officials from the central bank interacted with members of the public on some of the primary functions of the institution. Deputy Governor Fundi Chazibana says the forum is used to discuss matters concerning economic development with the public. We call this forum that we have twice a year, Talk to the Saab. It's an opportunity for the South African Reserve Bank to come and talk to members of the public about monetary policy decisions, why we've made those decisions. It's also to talk to the public about the other work that the South African Reserve Bank does, uh, including the supervision of banks that we do, the work that we do around the national payment system. 
New Chief of the International Monetary Fund says Kristalina Kristalina Georgia rather says trade disputes are taking a toll on the global economy, substantially weakening manufacturing activity and investment and holding back economic potential. Georgieva says the global economy, the cumulative effect of trade conflicts, could mean a loss of around seven hundred billion US dollars by twenty twenty. She was speaking at an event at the Global Lenders Headquarters ahead of the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank next week. The IMF head say also says the U.S.-China trade conflict has not only increased direct costs on businesses and consumers, but also caused secondary effects such as the loss of confidence and market reactions. Georgieva urged all countries to work together and find a lasting solution on trade. Twitter has apologized for unintentionally using email addresses and phone numbers provided by users for account security to enable targeted advertising. The company said third-party marketeers have been able to reach specific users on Twitter based on contact details, even if the user had wished had not wished the information be used this way. In a statement, Twitter said it cannot say with certainty how many people were impacted, but the BBC understands it affects users globally. Unusually, the company is not proactive contacting customers directly uh, to inform them of the breach. The company would not say when it discovered the issue, but said the issue had been addressed. And finally, the Zimbabwean government has been urged to consider revising uh, the tax-free thresholds on incomes. The co-recommendation was made by the Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries President. He told the Budget, Finance and Economic Development Portfolio Committee that the current level of $700, $700 was not sufficient to encourage spending in the economy. Appearing before the same committee, the Zimbabwe National Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Christopher Mugaga also said the 2% tax was a burden to business. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360 to the Nigerian Naira, 10.90 Botswana Pula, 102.81 a Kenyan shilling, and at 13.09 to the Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.09 Brazilian real, 65.06 Russian ruble, 70.90 Indian rupee, 7.14 Chinese yuan, and at 15.24 to the South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 91 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,505 and platinum at $891 per ounce and a barrel of burnt crude oil will cost you $58.10 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula. And now it's time for your sport. Here's Figili Lengwati. In this hour, we begin with rugby news. Springbok coach Rasi Rasmus says the X-Factor, Kuobas Rinach, was a chip off the old block as the Springbok scrum half scored the quickest World Cup hat-trick in a 66-7 rout of Canada in Kobe yesterday. Reinach, son of late South Africa's wing, Yako Reinach, took just 11 minutes to score three tries in a first half where the two-time world champion Springbok scored seven of the ten in the match. 
Reinach, whose treble was faster than Australia fullback Chris Latham's 25-minute hat-trick against Namibia at the 2003 World Cup, is widely regarded as the third-choice scrum half in the Springbok squad behind Fav de Klerk and Heschel Yankees. And former Springbok Sevens captain Philip Sneiman has had to announce his retirement of the sport due to a career-ending back injury. A 32-year-old led the Springbok to two World Rugby Sevens series, a title and a bronze medal at the Rugby World Cup Sevens in 2018. Sneiman also played Super and Curry Cup Rugby for the Cheetahs. Badminton South Africa senior national team coach Stuart Carson says they will target to send athletes at the 2024 Paris Olympics in France. Badminton is struggling for funding just like many other minor sporting codes in the country. Carson says funding will go a long way in assisting them to qualify for the future major events. Uh, funding issues, you know, having events like this, um, enticing sponsors to come in and help support our athletes, um, you know, and government SASCOP funding, you know, to help, um, you know, develop, you know, develop our athletes so that we can compete more internationally. And, you know, that, that's, that's the, the only way is, uh, is funding, you know, money. South Africa is in the top eight on the continent. In 2015, the country was the best in Africa, but has since fallen by the wayside. Kassin is confident they will return to the summit very soon. So we're in the top eight. You know, um, about in 20, 2015, 2016, we were the best in Africa and we had been the best in all the disciplines for five years, six years. Um, and then it's kind of fallen off because of, you know, funding constrictions, so it's dropped off. So in another two years, if we start developing properly now, then we'll get back to the top of Africa in, you know, three years. And after we get top of Africa, then we can start moving into Europe and competing there. Tennis news. Ruthless Roger Federer claimed victory in his Shanghai Masters opener with a straight set win over Spain's Alberto Ramos Vinolas. A 38-year-old Swiss won 6-2, 7-6 and 7-5 tie and plays Belgium's 13th seed, David Goffin or Mikhail Kukushkin of Kazakhstan in the last 16. In the other match, Andy Murray lost 7-6, 2-6 and 7-6 in the second round of the Shanghai Masters in what proved to be a heated clash. And in doubles, India's Rohan Bopana and his partner Denis Shapovalov entered the pre-quarterfinals of the Shanghai Masters doubles event with a straight set win over Russia's pair of Karen Kachanov and Andrei Rublev. The Indo-Canadian pair notched up a 6-1, 6-4 win. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Samora Magesi, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, uh, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us a tweet at Rise Shine Africa or email info at channelafrica.co.za. And uh, taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Brenda Fasi with a song titled Promises. Goodbye.
times of disaster as well.
Thank you.